This is Bernard Bruch with Intuit Econ. And today we're going to be talking about the ARK Invest forecast uh, and also providing our usual market update. Um, today we have uh, Rishi and Vishal as well as Ari joining. Um, Vishal and Rishi are brothers. Uh, and last time we um, Vishal was asking some really good questions in the comments, and so we thought, well, let's just let's just bring Vishal onto the podcast. Um, and I think your questions were so good, like they got to the heart of such key issues that that investors rush, wrestle with so fast that I actually ended up doing a separate monologue podcast to try to provide you a better answer on when to have confidence. Like or conviction. Like when do you really have conviction? That's such a tough question. And I think that the short answer was almost never have conviction. Mm-hmm. But uh, maybe before we jump into the ARK Invest piece, um, I'd be curious to get your reactions to to that whole model. And I think we put that up on Spotify, didn't we? Did we do that? It's on Spotify, yeah. yes. Yeah, oh, you cool. can access it. Okay, yeah, thank you so much for getting that out so fast. But um, yeah, feel free to give me your reactions to that. And if it's not good enough, then I'll do another one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just a little context. The, the reason I asked that question is that I'm, I'm a new trader, new investor, started in January of this year. And so one of the things I really battled with a lot was developing conviction in my trades or in investments. Because a lot of it is, I'm still learning a lot and I also don't know what I don't know, if that makes sense. And so my question was, how do I develop conviction when there's so much I have to learn about the economy, about finance, about how to value security, about how to understand their, their pipeline, their value proposition. And um, I think what you said on Twitter made a lot of sense. It's not something you're supposed to be able to develop easily. It's not something you should be able to figure out with just a couple months of experience. I mean, to develop real conviction where you're willing to make a big trade or a big investment takes a lot of years of experience and a lot of research into a very specific topic. So it's not meant to be something easy. Yeah, definitely not. And I think most people get that. What I, what I don't think they get is that even though the first few years that you're doing this a lot, um, you're probably not going to be able to have conviction about anything that I still think it's better than the folks that give up right away Mm -hmm. because there is no default portfolio. That's the part that's frustrating. It's like when folks are like, well, yeah, I don't know anything about investing. So I just, I just don't try to understand. Okay. You still have to put your money in something. So like what? Because you aren't because you aren't thinking about it and because you recognize that there's so much you don't know, therefore you're just going to sit on cash until you retire, right? Like you have to have at least enough knowledge to build a default portfolio uh and avoid catastrophic risks. It's a lot easier to avoid catastrophic risks than to build conviction in a trade, right? That's something I think people can put together if they spend maybe, you know, even like a couple hundred hours, just try to understand the basics of the different asset classes, like 
know that bonds basically give you nothing but risk, right? Like that's something that you can, you can figure that out pretty quickly. Oh yeah, you earn basically nothing and you're subject to a lot of risk. Okay, so probably don't wanna own that, right? But I think it's better to at least start and develop some of that. So yeah, making a huge amount of money on a trade isn't necessarily the goal the first few years. I think the goal is to try to learn what that default portfolio is so that you can still invest and prepare for retirement. Um, and then if you keep going and you really like it, then occasionally you might have one of those, what is it, Warren Buffett talks about the punch card, right? The 20 hole punch card. I haven't heard of that actually. Yeah. Uh, well, the idea is that over the course of your life, if, if you spend a lot of time investing and, and, and you just, you love it, so you put in the time that over the course of your whole life, you may only get conviction on 20 trades, 20. And we had like three during the pandemic. So that's like a lot. Like we had so like three Tesla. Ones. What else were your, your big conviction trades from last year? Oh, one was the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Just using that algo efficient market hypothesis to see the reality change on the ground anticipating this hitting the models after a month or so, because that's how long it takes to hit the macroeconomic data and the corporate earnings data. But recognizing the reality of the pandemic, being able to, you know, synthesize that, socialize those ideas really quick uh, with, at the time, basically just, you know, my investing buddies. Uh, now I think it's better. Now I, I feel like it's not so dependent on just people that I've known over the years, but trying to socialize it with the brain trust, but moving really, really quickly to try to assess that. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, there's some other good calls too. I mean, I, so we, we probably, we had a lot more good trades than things where we had huge conviction. Uh, everything was going up after the, after the bottom. So you didn't necessarily need to have a lot of conviction in one security. I'm not going to say that I had like 10 high conviction trades during all the pandemic. No. Um, India, I'd say was more um, really good, like buy and hold long term, but we weren't making like market timing calls around India. We just feel extremely bullish about the country for reasons that we've gotten into on previous discussions. Silver was one of them. Yeah. Silver was one of the other ones. Um, just, I mean, there was a tremendous amount of work that went into that. We started getting into the silver market and, and deeply understanding the relationship between that and electrification starting in like late summer 2019. So we were ready to go on that one. Um, but yeah, the pandemic was huge. Uh, we didn't have a lot of conviction in which trade, like which way to short. That's why we had this huge basket of different kinds of shorts. Cause we, did, we didn't know for sure. We were pretty sure it was gonna hammer oil. We we're pretty sure it was gonna hurt corporate bonds. But I mean, it hit everything. It was like, you could have shorted anything. You could have shorted the S&P, you would've been fine. What I find interesting about uh, this channel, you guys follow themes, whereas many other channels do deep dive analysis on individual securities. Oh man, we do everything. I mean, I'd say, I mean, we were so deep dive into DeFi tech that we met with the chairman, you know, to talk to him about problems we had with the security. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's pretty deep dive. 
most folks just publish and walk away and we're like you guys should really talk to us we can help you out like you know we do that too man long short options all asset classes um yeah i i think that i think that the the real theme here should be look for value and focus on research into securities that also allows compound interest of knowledge so like i don't i don't really like doing a whole lot of charting and technical analysis because i don't necessarily think that this is something that provides that compound interest of knowledge like deeply understanding disruptive technologies that's something i can talk to my kids about that's relevant for my own healthcare you know, and we're using 3D printing in the home, as we've talked about on prior podcasts, like it goes beyond just investing. I feel like that's a better way to get to that 10,000 hour mark to have conviction, like try not to make it so painful, you know, to get to that 10,000 hour mark. Yeah. Yep. Loud and clear. Uh, yeah, but you're not on, uh, you're, you're, you're not on, um, yeah, it's okay. I'll make you the host and then you can unmute yourself. Perfect. Awesome. Um, so, you know, that, that brings up a good, a good question. So, I mean, and I, I kind of struggle with this myself, which is like the market has obviously just gone up so much um, since the bottom. Um, and then everybody's calling for corrections, this and that. Like, what would be your advice to people who, for what, you know, for whatever reason, um, have new money that they want to invest. Obviously, we all know sitting on cash is not necessarily, you know, the most effective uh, way to invest. Um, so, what would be like, you know, the a, a starter portfolio right now? Um, you know, obviously that could be a long-winded question, but um, like, what would you suggest to somebody who's like, you know, maybe they sold their business, you know, had a liquidation event, or maybe they sold their house and came across some extra money and they, you know, were looking to invest it, you know, something in, in long-term investments, but being weary of the fact that, you know, we're obviously at a, a really interesting inflection point of the markets right now. Well, it's always, it's always an interesting inflection point. And people have been talking about the S and P the same way for like the past six months, you know, uh, ever since like that initial, maybe two, three month run after the election, um, people were talking about the S&P being in a bubble. And, and it actually goes back further than that. You had Stanley Druckenmiller two months after the bottom saying that he thought the S&P at 3,000 was like absurd and like the most highly valued that he's ever seen in his whole career. And he's like the, he's like the greatest investor living today, right? So I think part of, part of this is like diversify, diversify. You have to, like, unless... You know, we're not, we don't have a particularly diversified portfolio right now, but that's because we have conviction in certain trades, right? And that's not, some, even if you think that we are right, you can't necessarily even execute the, the trade very well if you don't actually have that conviction yourself, right? So uh, I think that there there are a few so first of all, we don't do investing advice yet. 
we are starting an investment advisory firm, but even then it's gonna be specific to those people that are signed up that we can give disclaimers to and all that, right? So I'm happy to talk shop, right? But not giving investing advice. Um, but if I were say talking to you know my grandmother about what she should be doing uh, to be helpful, I'd talk about a few basic rules of investing that are never gonna go away. And one is to diversify. Right. And so I think that everybody, a lot of people know that, but they don't necessarily know what that actually means. They think that the S&P 500 is diversified. No, it's not. You're talking about, uh, okay, so these are the 500 most expensive companies in one country that's also arguably a declining power. You know, it's dominated. It, it's, it's, it's also the best performing uh, ETF. Like, or it's one of the best performing ETFs and one of the best performing markets over the past like 12 years. And, and Bridgewater's put out some really useful research talking about regime changes and how you can't just have one country's stock market going up decade over decade. They show how it's actually inversely correlated about how if one country does really well during one decade, they're more likely all else equal. If you don't know anything else, you should assume that they're actually going to under underperform other countries generally over the following decade. Um, you're also talking about, you know, that whole indice is basically a combination of FANG stocks and a lot of value investments, value investments, right? Companies that um, ARK, you know, ARK Invest, Kathy Wood at ARK Invest is arguing, I think she makes some persuasive arguments about how a lot of these companies have been buying back stock. And that was part of the reason why their share price kept going up. They were basically giving people, giving investors a larger and larger percentage share of the S&P. So yeah, the, the price is going to go up, but they were doing that by leveraging up. That's why, that's a part of the reason why we were shorting corporate bonds is that the, the credit underwriting there has just been slowly eroded over the past decade, right? So know, know what actual like true diversification means. It means diversi di diversifying across currencies, across countries, across asset classes, right? Um, and the ETFs that exist out there aren't necessarily structured in a way that actually gives that diversification, right? Uh, market cap weighted ETFs are not necessarily diversified. They're heavily weighted toward companies that are really expensive by construction. That's not necessarily diversified, right? Um, there are a lot of companies, innovative companies that are, that are growing really fast and, and, and doing valuable things that are very small and they're actually hard to find. And we like those. We like those because they get easier to buy over time. That's like the big crypto play. Just find, just know that it's going to get easier to buy crypto mm -hmm. was like the name of the game for like a decade. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I, I think that that's, that's key. And then. Part of that is understanding the different asset classes, right? Like people tend to think that you're a diversified portfolio if you own stocks and bonds, you're not. Bridgewater just came out with another podcast, uh, what was it, three weeks ago. It's the same stuff that Ray Dalio has been talking about though for for you know years, is, is this idea that you can go into these regime changes where there's positive correlations between stocks and bonds. We are likely there. That's our correlation regime article that we already published. Right, and talked about. And we've done tons of other work on there. I've got a 40-page slide deck I'm ready to put out 
maybe on September 17th when we do this like coming out party. Um, so that's not going to get you there. So then how do you get there? Commodities would be one. Cryptocurrencies would be another. Um, look at these assets. These are the assets that are going to outperform more as this growing bubble in bonds is already in a big time bubble, but some stocks are starting to get really, really highly valued, like especially the, the quote value stocks, right? Because they're perceived as safe, they're becoming very unsafe right now. So yeah, diversifying across countries, different asset classes, currencies, size of the stock, you can try to get exposure to other things too, like uh, even some private equity investments. We're looking at teaming up with Ari about having his, uh, his own real estate fund kind of available to our investors um, so that they can also diversify across real estate, right? To just try to really mix that up. So you're not forced to try to make these calls. You shouldn't be making these calls. For most people, yeah. Did that answer your question? That was really long-winded, sorry. <laughs> yeah, very good answer. Essentially, yeah, for, for someone who, who is not a professional, it's it's very intimidating. Sure. To, to try and to try and accomplish what you're you know, what you're talking about. Um, as far as diversification and, and whatnot across countries and um, it's actually not. We, we put up on our, on intuitycon.com, we put up a portfolio that we consider to be like a lower risk, highly diversified basket using almost all ETFs. It's not that complicated. You do develop markets, uh, foreign markets, concentrate those in a few different countries. Brazil was one, India was a bigger one. Yeah. Um, countries that have more commodities. Uh, so like Chile, Australia, a couple big ones that's how you get exposure to china without necessarily being a huge fan of xi and you know the way that he can just basically decimate entire industries like online for-profit learning uh copper copx silver silver mining companies as part of electrification um yeah it's all on the blog um there's like 15 securities in that when do you think would be the right time to get back into s p 500 Dude, we're short in the S&P right now. We're nowhere near. <laughs> I mean, we're also long other things to offset. So we run a long short portfolio. Um, that's all I mean by that is that we'll take a leverage long position in some securities, but then we'll offset the market risk to some degree. And so we're looking for the, the security to short. So we're doing that with the S&P, but then also like a value oriented. And we've got our basket of shorts on a lot of value stuff like Ford, GM, XOP. Um, yeah, it looks dangerous right now. Yeah, I would. I mean, yeah, that's why we started shorting a lot of these value stocks two and a half weeks ago. Um, I mean, there's some big tells for that. Like one is there, there was just no rational reason for oil prices to get higher than they were pre pandemic. Like that is money plowing into, you know, quote value stocks that pay dividends and have consistent cash flows. That's not, that doesn't make something value. That's just a characteristic of a stock. And those stocks, by the way, have underperformed FANG and like more growth oriented stocks for like a decade, right? See, one should wonder why.
one should really want to wonder why. Um, and yeah, there's like the pandemic had huge impacts on behavior. So when I see uh, corporate real estate office space in major cities, like getting back up close to the prices that they were pre pandemic, like that's stupid. Like it's not going to, it's not nearly that valuable. No, there's the, the, the reckoning's coming. It just, it just happens more slowly. You know, it was just part of this whole rotation trade. I do imagine that at one point though, the companies within the S&P 500 will change to reflect the change in trends. Like for example, maybe the innovative stocks will be the bulk of the S&P 500 and then we'll start eliminating the ones that are supposed value companies. Like every decade, the companies change. So wouldn't it be safe at one point in the long run, like maybe in a five years or something? Oh yeah. So I'm not like generally against the S and P uh, as a, as a rule. I don't necessarily think it makes the best short. Part of the reason why we're shorting it is because buy is so liquid, and we change our mind a lot. So. You know, when we, uh, part of what Ari was talking to us about how we can help to uh, to showcase our results. So we're just gonna publish like all the trades we've had over the past three years. And man, we do a, like we've done a lot. Like we go in and out of trades a lot. So part of that is because there are a lot of biases that play into owning a stock. So the fact that we can trade for free now is useful because if you've owned something for a long time, then you tend to perceive it as being safer. Hmm. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes you can be biased against owning something if you haven't owned it. So we might buy it just to see how it impacts like our psychology on it, right? So that's actually quite helpful. So, but, but generally I'm not against the s and I'm not mm -hmm. totally against structuring a, a, an ETF as market cap weighted. It just depends on whether or not and you have to look, you have to think about the fundamentals, right? What's in that ETF? That's ETFs are great because they provide you diversification, but they're also kind of risky because they basically tell the investor, you don't have to think about what you're buying. Just buy this big basket of stuff and look, you're, you're diversified now because you're in this big basket of stuff. It's like, yeah, unless that basket is market cap weighted such that the valuations of things as they grow makes you have more exposure to stuff that's more expensive. That's potentially problematic. Um, yeah. Cigar is, at, Cigar is asking, um, uh, he's, he's talking, he refers to the Fed, uh, obviously signaling towards the beginning of the QE tapering. Um, so he views that as many others as, uh, as a major risk to all the asset classes over the next few quarters. So he's asking how the, um, the long arc thesis uh, would line up, you know, yeah. with this scenario. Everybody's asking that. Yep, we've had the same view for the past uh, six months or so. So companies like Triple D and Invite are not competing with bonds. That's important. So when investors that own bonds say when you talk about tapering there's two effects one is the effect that it has on yields for bonds 
So if the yield on like say the 10 year goes from 1.3 to 1.5 or 1.7, there's that effect. And then there's also, also the effect on money supply. So when they say tapering, they're not talking about taking money out of the system. They're talking about slowing the rate at which they're putting money into the system. And there is so much money in the system, like household balance sheets, corporate balance sheets, and all the all the refinancing that happened, like there is so much cash, they should be tapering. They should have been tapering a while ago, but it's not gonna decrease the cash on balance sheet. It's just gonna slow the rate at which people are still getting more cash than they actually need, especially richer people and especially corporates that already don't know where to put their money. That's why corporate bonds and, and treasury bond yields kept falling after the, the regulatory change at the end of March, because there's so much money. It's like, you wanna know how much money there is in the system, imagine what could possibly lead to the 10 year falling back down to 1.3% with CPI prints above 5%. That is a tremendous amount of cash. And, and unfortunately, like a lot of folks still not thinking through the details of what actually matters in terms of risk. They think if they don't know what to do, buy treasury bonds, right? Because it's perceived safety. That's part of that too. So, so what happens when the tapering happens? Well, there's going to be two immediate fundamental changes, and then there's a psychological change. One is that the rate at which people are going to get more money will start to slow down, but it's still going to take like maybe eight months. One of the Fed chairs or, or, or Fed panel members mentioned that. Um, the other one is that 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 rate of decrease may or may not cause rates to rise some. So maybe it goes from like 1.3, 1.5 to 1.7, right? Nobody investing in genomics technology and 3D printing with these companies that don't, like some of them don't have earnings. If they do have earnings, they're probably small and they just recently became profitable and they're growing at 50% a year on average with a huge distribution around it. These companies have enormous risk premiums. You do the discounted cash flow on these companies with a 10% like discount rate because of, of the risk premium and adding a benchmark rate of 1.3 to 1.7 has basically an immaterial impact on the present value of that future da uh, future cash flow because they're so incredibly risky. So that gets to this idea of like, are they actually competing? Like no investor out there is like, you know, I was gonna buy 3D, uh, 3D systems because they're 3D printing human lungs and that's gonna come online and maybe like the next year, wouldn't that be exciting? I was gonna buy it at 1.3% on the treasury tenure, <laughs> but now that it's a 1.7, I just don't think that it's actually gonna be all that important. It's like, that's stupid. But you know who is gonna get impacted? All these value stocks. These companies that pay consistent cash flows, consistent dividends, these companies that are bond-like in their consistency, they're the ones that are more likely to get hit if you get which is that's antithetical to the way that people were thinking because they saw the crash in arc in late you know in, in mid february coinciding with the run up in in, in the treasury yield mm -hmm. but that's just not consistent with the historical data that's just the recency bias that's what's in their head so there was a narrative that developed that's like oh no if the treasury goes from 1% to 1.7 then all of a sudden, Kathy Wood's a fraud and disruptive innovation doesn't work anymore. All the technology is going to shut down. 
right? We're just gonna, we're never gonna get our genome sequence now because of treasury bonds. It's like, it's ridiculous. So if you go historically, look at the dot-com bubble. The dot-com bubble happened when the 10-year was trading at 5.5 to 6%, and the CAPE ratio on the S&P got up to 44. And the, and the price to sales ratio on the NASDAQ was up to like 70. It was insane. And that all happened when treasury bonds were paying you like actual risk-free. Like, I mean, that was a good deal back then. Like inflation rates was well, that was a, like you were getting a real return of like, you know, 2%. That's pretty darn good. And yet they were ignoring a real return of 2%, 55 to 6% going into your bank account year after year on basically risk-free because like the a lot of these bonds were shorter maturity back then too like the the maturity on a lot of these bonds have just exploded because people have so much money they're just pushing out the maturity cutting covenants on all these bonds right people that were investing in tech don't care about yields on treasury bonds they care about you know what really matters is like the pace of innovation and what are those what are those technologies? Because we go through periods where there is more disruptive technology and you know, there are some periods where we don't. And a lot of that has to do with public policy. A lot of, a lot of that has to do with like, do we set up a country in an environment in which um, we're actually trying to push for, um, uh, you know, helping to facilitate businesses investing in these technologies or are we more like an environment in the late 1800s where there's so much inequality uh, that that you know there's like a people start hating successful you know tech entrepreneurs like the you know Rockefeller a lot of these folks that were um, that were leading the industrial revolution they were hated on frankly by a lot of folks right it happened again like after World War II there was some of that where you know, Democrats got in power and there was, you know, there, there was just a general mistrust of business. And so the, the power swing started to shift more towards government and, and, and freedom was taken away from capitalists to try to innovate and, and improve things. Um, and so you get these swings, you get these regime changes. And so part of this calculus is thinking through, you know, how quickly can Democrats screw this up by trying to you know, grab the, the the steering wheel of the economy and, and and pretend that somehow government bureaucracies are, you know, the way that we make the world better. And it generally isn't the case. There are some some cases they can do some things that are very valuable, but generally it's innovation. So so right now it's still really good. Right now we are still a capitalist economy. We are still providing a space for brilliant minds to change the world. And man, do we got man, is this portfolio of disruptive innovation powerful. It, on the ground, it is changing lives. It is making things better. It is lowering costs. That reality is hitting those balance sheets. That's why they're beating on earnings. That's why they're growing so fast. That's why they're becoming profitable, right? So that reality is there. The question is sentiment. Sentiment. What? What leads to the breakout? Why have conviction in a breakout? It's like 
no, usually you don't do that. If you're trying to start a successful podcast, like you don't put out forecasts like that, right? Usually you just do a, like a whole lot of nice talk about how investing is hard and nobody really knows how to beat the market and right. And it's like, well, why the hell would you listen to that podcast though? Aren't like half the investing podcasts like that? I feel like that's like half. I think so. <laughs> it's not like, it's not that we're right every time. That's not it at all. But it's just like, if you're doing an investing podcast and you don't have conviction and ideas and trades, then shut up and do something else. Right? Like, we all know that it's hard. We all know that. But I think we want to be a podcast where at least when we see and have conviction, recognizing that the world's uncertain, we're going to come out and tell people why, and it's on record. And if we're wrong, we own up to it, um, which I've done several times on Twitter recently, especially with ARKG, because that one, like, we called bottom on that one. That one kept going down, even though, like, our trades generally have done well, and so it did bottom. But I need a breather because I've been talking too much as usual. So you guys tell tell me how should we ease into this ARK Invest discussion? Well, the number one question that's playing my mind right now is basically what event laid, led you to predict um, next month's break, like the predicted breakout of the ARK fund? Because we're having our our our, our Intuiticon <laughs> launch party on September seventeenth. Of course, that's there. <laughs> it's in the stars. That's yeah. a clear signal. <laughs> it's a clear signal, and you know, uh, no, that's not really it. Um, <laughs> okay, well, so so a few things. So one, we've been tracking this for about a year. I'd say we've been really focused on it. Um, part of this was because our initial investment in Tesla, um, we started to see Kathy Wood become a rock star after we made that, in, that investment. Sorry. So like we made the investment in Tesla back in uh, April, May of 2019. And basically nobody had heard of her. I think she had like 2,000 followers on Twitter. Um, but but we thought that like she did an interview with Elon Musk, thought it was really good. I really liked the fact that everybody thought that Elon Musk was crazy. Um, even though, even friends of mine that are Democrats were like, I don't like him. I'm like, the mission of his life is to help save the planet. Why do you not like this guy? So there was like a lot of hatred against this guy. And I love it when that happens. Like when there's a ton of negative sentiment about a security, for reasons that are nonsensical that's great there's there it's worth digging into that so that was part of the reason for the conviction there then that started to rise and we saw the electric revolution coming with solar so so that was big so we we're kind of playing some of that and these are some of the best performing securities in all of 2020 right you look at the best best performing etfs arc invest was 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 huge um but then also uh, these like renewable energy stocks were huge. And so we were writing a lot at the time about how we actually sold all of our Tesla stock toward the end of, uh, it was like mid-December um, 2020 that we're like, okay, this, this, this is getting euphoric. Like basically electrification is not going to be all that great. It's not, for most people, it's going to be really painful because electric vehicles are so simple 
that you're going to have a hard time making money even and all these car companies are plowing into it like it's a gold mine it's not a gold mine these are like glorified rc cars we used to play with them when we were kids mm-hmm. right? so we're looking at this and basically what happened with tesla was part of a call option bubble that we were following through 2020. It was even after adjusting for the market cap of the company, there was more volume in call options and higher call option premiums relative to the actual volatility of the security for Tesla than any other stock in the market in the United States, at least. We only checked the US. So why is that? Huge speculation. Absolutely rampant bubble speculation behavior in Tesla and electric vehicles and like basically renewable energy, like solar ETFs, TAN was one of the best performing ETFs of the whole year. Same thing, right? Well, ARK Invest got caught up in that. And toward the end of that, basically the euphoria around Tesla started to spill over to disruptive innovation. And disruptive innovation essentially became an asset class in part, in large part, because of Kathy Wood. And like, she just does such a very good job of talking about it. She articulated it really well. Um, the, the decks that they put out were, you know, people basically got hooked on it. It became contagious like a virus. People were passing around this stuff and being like, dude, genomics, dude, 3D printing. Oh my goodness, electrification, it's gonna change the world, right? So you look at the fun flows into ARC and you can see it. And we're, we're tweet. this is why we sold out of all this stuff on January 28th, right? Which I put in that article. I'm like, we sold like almost everything. This is going to be bad. We're buying more Ethereum. We're buying silver. You know, we were basically trying to hedge our bets and some of that stuff did better than others, but like, yeah, Ethereum would be great. Would have done better if it weren't for goddamn grayscale and those, uh, those discounts. But, um, but that call was right. So what was driving that call? Clear speculative bubble behavior people were losing their minds and it was the small cap stocks and arc that got pushed it was 3d printing and genomics but 3d printing especially that we were seeing in the portfolio every single day these stocks were going up like five percent like every day it was insane right and so we were bracing for this this crush uh, because that that can't be sustained. That level of, of euphoria can't. Like she was being, she was on CNBC. People were talking about how she was the next Warren Buffett. YouTube videos, 10,000 people would watch a video of what she traded the previous day. The account for that YouTube channel had been created three months prior. That's a bubble, right? But it was a bubble mostly in electric vehicles that started it. It was Tesla, right? You don't get a bubble in a, in a few months. And the real run-up in 3D printing, if you look closely, and this is in that second piece that we published, the, the real like run-up that happened in, 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 in that space, the, the small cap stuff pushed by all the money flow started right after the election. And it lasted about three months. And then they got crushed. You don't get a bubble in three months. You don't. It takes at least two years. So that's the first piece that we did on on bubbles was you go back through, look at the history of bubbles. And basically this, there's this longer period, I think with the crypto bubble, that was the shortest one, but you kind of got to look at that differently because it was such a small market cap that it's hard to, to really say that that's also 24, seven, 365. 
Yeah, the psychology around that one, I think it just played out quicker. But you look at the housing bubble, that was like a five-year. And then you look at the, you know, the bubble that 1929, you look at the dot-com bubble, these were like three, four, five-year, depending on how you measure it. You don't get bubbles in three months. So there was a massive run-up and like these 3D printing stocks, it's a really good example. Like they're, they basically went from being quote in a bubble to back to prices they were at two, three years prior in just a few months. Like like Stratasys and uh, Proto Labs, for example, like these are big companies in the 3D printing space. They're like back to like multi-year lows. <laughs> like, well, you go from a bubble to multi-year lows in like, you know, six months, <laughs> like, like that doesn't really work. And then if you look at, then you look at the genomic space and it's like, well, we were in a pandemic and a big reason why we were saved from that pandemic was because of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, learning about the actual yep. DNA of these viruses. These companies are growing really, really fast, curing people and curing disease and, and the news is coming out, right? So the reality on the ground supports the run-up in a lot of these companies. You look at Nvite price to sales of 14. This is a leader in the space, right? This is like our bellwether. Um, that's nothing close to the bubbles of like the NASDAQ with a you know near 100% growth rate. So, so if you understand the fundamentals of these companies and you look at the actual price action, this is not a bubble. It's nowhere close to a bubble. But it did get freaking crazy toward the end when all that Tesla euphoria just started to spill into Kathy Wood as Jesus, you know, come save me from my my day job, right? But that was a pretty short that was a pretty short period, and it was there was a liquidity push where these companies were so small that the broker dealers that were taking the money on from Ark were just buying the stock, and it was just sending these things to the absolute stratosphere, right? Uh, and that was really, really amazing. Um, but it also scared the living daylights out of us. And that's why we sold out. So we were sold, so we sold out of it. And then we're like, okay, we like these stocks. We just want to wait for them to implode. And we waited for ARC to drop like 20% before we really started buying in heavy. And that was a mistake because it kept going. <laughs> It kept going down. So I'd say it was like by early April, we were really hammering on some of the stuff like, okay, we're buying in more, we're buying in more, and we're buying. In more. Uh, and then we, you know, really got super aggressive with like call options and all that stuff like heavy in, in mid-May. And then it bounced back. And I'm still quite confident in that call on bottom. What's happened since then? almost every single one of the major companies that are in these ETFs, especially genomics and 3D printing, have been absolutely killing it on earnings and revenue. And all the CEOs and executives and basically every thought leadership piece in the space is saying that this is actually happening faster than they expected in terms of adoption and growth. But it's not happening faster than the CEOs were expecting because they were all saying this for the past year. So, then you look at the, the size of the companies and they're just, these are really small companies, right? So, so then it becomes a question of how many people know that these stock exi stocks exist and are watching right now compared to a year ago? That's really it. Because a lot of these stocks are back down to the same market caps that they were a year ago. But the, 
the number of investors that know about these tickers and know about this technology. This is this gets to this whole idea of the, the initial phase of the bubble is the awareness phase. It's probably about a hundred times more than it was a year ago. Because a year ago, that was when people actually started to realize that Tesla wasn't like a joke. And they started to realize that the future was electrification, even though a lot of these car companies, it's not actually gonna be good for them. That was when they discovered ARC and she became like all over headline news, CNBC. That was when they watched and looked at her research papers talking about this disruptive technology. That was when they initially bought into this sharp rise that was this, you know, basically like the, the bear trap and then, you know, got hurt by it because they watched the kid on YouTube, you know, right? And so now all those folks are still there, but they're still, they're still thinking. They're like, I still believe this. This is still true. I just really screwed up the trade along with a lot of other people, like my dad, when he bought the very top of the crypto bubble with uh, $5,000 worth of Litecoin via credit card. I hope we, let's make sure we keep that on the podcast. Love you, dad. <laughs> right before Charlie Lee came out and said that he sold all of his and it's just like, oh, right? Yeah, I had, I had a moment like that as well. My brother-in-law um, called me, he's a firefighter paramedic and he admittedly know nothing about investing. And he's like, man, I'm seeing everybody, everybody in the stations talking about, you know, crypto now. And, and, and you know, he's like, I, I just, I gotta get in because I mean, I'm gonna miss it. And if I, if I miss it, I'm just gonna be devastated. I'm like, Sean, whatever you do, do not buy. This was like in January of 2018. I was like, do not, I was like, I've been a part of real estate bubbles. I've, it scared me also. I had sold a bunch of, I still have plenty. Um, but anyways, that being said, and there you go. And so afterwards, after he lost like 90% of his money that he invested, I said, just let me know in the next few years. I, when, when we're in another bull market, what's being talked about, nothing against firefighters, obviously, I think they're amazing people, but, um, they're not professional investors. So I said, when, when crypto is the talk of the fire station, let me know because I'll be looking That's at That's right. Out. You help, however, <laughs> yeah, however, you know, now with the, the entire Robin Hood phenomenon, uh, I got to tell you, everybody's on their phones on, on Robin Hood buying and, and everybody, you know, made money last year and they're still doing, I think, you know, it's probably not as, it's definitely not as easy as it was, um, you know, earlier in the year, but a lot what? of these guys are- Dude, it's been very easy for the folks who got the rotation. They've been playing the next momentum trade. That's yeah. the new- that's the new environment. When you pump up the amount of money in the entire US economy with 30% more cash than before, and then on top of that, investors like households in the US went from having like 6% savings rates to 20, you know, for a year. They've got so much money that it's all about chasing. And that's one thing that we didn't we didn't catch that very like that didn't really occur like i didn't quite figure that out until maybe it was around may when when we were hitting bottom on arc i was like what's going on here because i thought it would happen quicker right i thought we'd hit bottom quicker and that's when i realized wait a minute that rotation trade and the new narrative where all the money was flowing was all about the reopening <laughs> 
right? It was all about the yeah. value trade. It was all about, oh, now it's going to be, and it didn't really matter what it was, but it was, it was, you know, the price action creates the narrative and the new narrative was bet value. And so what I didn't get right was I wasn't pricing in the overshoot. I wasn't saying I'm going to wait until oil prices get higher than they were before the pandemic. And all these corporate office buildings are like basically scot-free from, from, you know, assuming no change in behavior and everybody's going to go back to work and commute again. Like I wasn't waiting for the overshoot. I was waiting for the, the value trade to basically get price back to what seemed rational. But that's not about rational now because the percent of trading volumes went from 5% uh, before like 2019. You look at a typical, uh, uh, a typical day in the market and something like 5% of, of trades would be considered like retail investor because they're like smaller percentages as opposed to institutions. That jumped to 20% pretty quickly during the pandemic. And it hasn't really gone down. Why is that? So everybody's at home. And they got lots of cash. So it's a that's a different sort of environment. That's an environment of the Robin Hoods and the Reddits and you know people hopping on yeah, the podcast yeah. and going on Twitter and seeing what's the trade. And one of these TikTokers said it best. He was like, he and his wife, I don't know if you guys saw this one, but he and his wife were like, all right, you guys want to be like us? Okay. So here we are. Exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the strategy. Here's what we do. We buy the stock and watch it go up until it starts to go down, and then we sell. That was it. Like that was the whole. That was the whole thing. And that I watched that, and I'm like, so brilliant. That's yeah. That's what they're all doing. Yeah. So what happens yeah. when the market's dominated by those people, and everybody starts watching the same? This is when technical analysis actually starts to work. Technical analysis works when it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. If everybody's looking at the same descending wedge triangles, and that's the thing that's floating around on Twitter and Reddit and everything, right? And it's already there. I was going, I, before this, I was going on Twitter, just like looking in through like, who who can I message about this, this ARKK breakout and all that? And I'm seeing the same triangles that I make because, you know, we're mm -hmm. pattern recognition machines, right? We see the triangles, we draw the lines, and we go, look, I'm a brilliant investor. It's going to break out. And then we tell all our <laughs> friends. And then pretty soon they're starting hedge funds. Never happened to me. But, you know, this is, this, is what's, this is what's happened in the market when you have that much liquidity pumped in, is that retail investors end up driving more behavior and they actually start impacting price behavior. And so their beliefs about markets actually end up becoming self-fulfilling if there are certain kinds of technical indicators. That's why crypto, that's, that's a big reason why we've done better with crypto is that this technical stuff actually works. And the reason why is because you have almost nothing fundamental to go on. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna look at price charts all day and draw triangles, right? So it ends up working because everybody else sees the breakout. Remember we did our Ethereum breakout party like four mm -hmm. or five months ago and we're like, woo, Ethereum breakout party, nailed it, right? Yep. And we did the same thing like three, four weeks ago. We're like, oh, look, it broke the triangle, rocket moon. <laughs> I'm not even watching. You guys are like, so what do you think about crypto? I'm like, what, did it go up again? And you're like, yeah, okay. You know, but that's happening with the broader stock market. So long as you're talking about the stocks that are influenced more by emotion and what gives you a 
bigger emotional high in response? Is it ExxonMobil, Ford, or genomics 3D printing Tesla Arc? People are trading these securities based on sentiment and emotion. That's why they're looking at price charts. That's why that matters more because the reality, the fundamental reality of these companies is so much harder to price that sentiment drives price action, especially in a world flooded with liquidity. And the fact that the Fed's gonna start to slow down the, the increase in liquidity doesn't change the reality of all the liquidity. If they came out and said, we're gonna to start to take money away by buying bonds or by, by selling bonds, you know, then I'd be like, oh, okay, watch out, right? But they're not doing that. They're just like slowly gonna taper the rate at which they're continuing to flood money into the market. So it's not actually gonna have any real impact on this. Um, what, what really matters is the turn in sentiment. All the people that are listening here on on uh, Twitter Spaces, you know, here in this in this podcast we put up on Spotify, and like all these folks that are out there, what are they going to do when they start to see what they think is a breakout? Right? How does that grow? Right? How much how much of the market is putting like basically orders where if they see that breakout, just like with crypto. Why did it happen so fast? Because they're putting the order such that as soon as it hits a certain price, then they market by Ethereum or Bitcoin, right? So it forces the breakout. That's the other thing. It's like, if you get close to the breakout, if you get too close, there's so many of these traders now that they're just gonna like overwhelm the book and start buying up these securities. That's definitely true for the small cap stuff. That's why we like uh, 3D printing and and genomics even better. I'm still kind of nervous about electric vehicles and Tesla, and we don't own ARKK right now. We own ARKG, print, and like these small cap stuff because EVs were in a bubble. They were, that's gonna weigh on it. If I had to guess which security is gonna perform the least well in, in all of ARK, it's actually gonna be their flagship fund. Mm. Unless, of course, Tesla actually solves the autonomous driving. That's a jump condition. As soon as they do that, the news comes out that day, just buy call options on Tesla, short dated, and just ride the wave. That thing's going to be enormous. Uh, in short, like every other car company in, in America. This is not investing advice. But that's a really easy one to play, man. The algos aren't going to get that shit at all. Like, they're no clue. No clue the impact of autonomous driving. All they have to do it, they're going to do it in California first, by the way. It's just going to be California. They're going to say, okay, we got approval. Done. Rocket moon. High conviction. Punch card. Are you sure that, I mean, are you, are you sure? Are you confident it's going to be Tesla that, 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 because the reason I, the reason I asked this is I was watching 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago. They did a, I should find it. I'll send it to you. Uh, a autonomous, um, truck report on just like the impact on on the industry and whatnot, and they were in these they were in these um, these semis that were people you know there were people from the company that I believe was based in I want to say Texas, but I, I'll I'll find the the video and send it to you. It was really interesting, and these trucks were driving themselves. Oh yeah, no, I watched all that stuff like two years ago, and I followed it. So so there are. Uh, 
there are fundamental differences in the way that people are approaching autonomous driving. Tesla's the only one that's doing it by having more data, like real data, not simulated data. That was the original talk that Kathy Wood did with Elon Musk, um, like almost like two and a half years ago that made the case. And then he, he, he told the same thing to investors. He did his uh, autonomous driving autopilot demo day. Um, that was like uh, around, I think he did that even before the price was tanking, we were buying into it. It was, it was in 2019 around the time we were buying. Um, these companies are relying on LIDAR uh, or they're paying drivers to try to get miles. can't do you can't do either and win so you can't rely on lidar because it's not scalable that's why all the other players in the space are basically trying to go city by city and and, and they're also focusing on on cities that don't have bad weather you know why lasers don't work when it rains i mean it's it's and he told him right there he, i think he said something that was the equivalent of this is stupid and he's used LiDAR technology. He uses it at, at SpaceX. But you can't use something to help you drive that doesn't work when it's, when it's raining or cloudy. And you also can't use uh, like basically high precision uh, GPS maps because the world changes. Like what happens when there's construction or a tree falls down? Like it's funny because I, I'm trained in model building and risk management and building out rather sophisticated uh, uh, forecasting models and stuff, but the logic required to understand why Tesla's going to win in this space is not complicated. Um, my nine-year-old daughter goes around explaining it to people because I'm too tired of it now, but she gets a, she gets a kick out of it, you know, trying to explain it to people. Sorry, like half the people on my block were calling me Tesla, insert last name. Uh, it wasn't Bernard, but we were talking about this all the time so my daughters were like teaching the other kids about it but of course like half the block was like didn't like elon musk or whatever so then they got really good at this but it's just not very complicated right the other piece of it is like you know what do we use to drive eyeballs eyeballs or cameras that's that's the that's the other bit of it that that i think is really straightforward it's like you don't actually need LIDAR to drive. If we needed LIDAR to drive, then we would all need to have like little lasers sticking out of our heads, you know, but we don't. Um, we need to have a real-time way to see the world. And that's 360 cameras. Plus we actually got the radar going through the front. We can see cars in front of the car in front of us. That's really good. Um, Tesla has 99.9% .9 of the miles driven of 360 vision plus radar on these cars. And that's, that's compared to the entire rest of the market combined because they're paying people to drive cars. People are paying to drive Tesla cars. The other companies are paying people to drive cars to try to get miles. They're screwed and they can't scale. That's the other thing It's like, when this works and it gets regulatory approval, you just turn this thing on, boom. It'll start with California and then it'll hit like a few other states and then within like two, three years, it'll be over half the country. It's coming. I just don't know when. It's really, really hard to tell when it's the regulatory approval piece 
It's also people getting comfortable with the idea, uh, even within Tesla, the leadership position of like, when are we comfortable with turning this on? Because they're doing a calculus of, yeah, we want to go out quicker, but we also want to reduce the probability of lawsuit. So we, do we do this when it's as good as humans or do we do it when it's like 30% better or do we do it when it's twice as good, right? So they're weighing all that calculus. That's why it's impossible for me to know, but I don't have to know because algo efficient markets are gonna have no clue. I just wait for the signal. It's kind of like COVID. It's like, as soon as there, there's another pandemic, if markets are still just algo efficient and nothing else, it's like when there's some huge major change in the world and you know it's gonna hit financial markets, great, you got about a month to move. I think we're looking at 98 more years. This pandemic's only about to happen once every century. You think it's going to take 98 years? <laughs> I have no idea. The trucks are going to be huge. What you mentioned, that's that's going to be way easier because these folks, they don't actually have to be fully autonomous. So 99% of the miles driven by these trucks is basically on the highway. And that part is pretty easy to automate. Like you could probably pay enough people uh, in the trucking space to just get enough miles to maybe try to compete with Tesla until they turn on, even though I still think you're not going to win. Um, because it's just so easy to drive on the highway, right? You don't have to worry about debris. You don't, you don't have to worry about streets not being marked. Like the, you don't have to worry about parking really. You just slow down and stop on the side of the road or whatever they're going to do. Like the, the, the problem is way simpler to solve, right? Compared to, um, what Tesla's solving, which is all these esoteric con conditions. Like when people put bicycles on the backs of their cars, and then they have to train the AI to recognize that it's actually a car and not a bicycle. Um, and just everything. I mean, it, it's very complicated, but it keeps getting better. Nobody else has the data. That's the other thing. They just, they're just going in the wrong direction. Um, and I believe Tesla is able to simulate so many of these unlikely scenarios like people running on the street or anything else. And I guess that kind of uh, software and that kind of information they have is not something that a lot of their competitors would have. No, they don't even, it's not that, yeah, they don't have the software either. Mm -hmm. So, so Tesla went out and basically built their own, uh, their own um, uh, computer chips to try to handle that specific type of, of machine learning and the amount of data, because they wanted to have more data running on the car. So they didn't have to beam and grab information because they, they knew how important it was to, to have the reaction times essentially like millisecond, right? So yeah, they have the data and then on top of the data, they have the software. Um, I think if you still think that Elon Musk is an idiot, then that says more about you. So they have the leadership um, and they also have ridiculous amounts of capital. Like, you know, they're not just the biggest car company. They're like the biggest car company, even if you compare all the other car company market capitalizations combined. So they have, they have the manpower, the woman power, the brilliance, all that. Also, one of the other reasons why we invested in Tesla is that we were trying to figure out if he was crazy or not. Um, and we looked to see where Stanford, MIT, and like other top universities, like what were the top companies that they wanted to work for? And guess where MIT, guess the top two places that, that graduates of MIT want to work for? 
2019. I haven't updated this, but there was a survey. Let's take a wild guess. Imagine Tesla. SpaceX, Tesla. You want to look for scarce assets in the world right now? It's not money. It's not capital. It's not land. It's IQ and attention. Find the companies where the most brilliant minds are working. Invest in those companies. This is not Elon a Musk. advice. <laughs> <laughs> so Elon Musk wants to recruit tons of the brilliant minds to build that Tesla bot, huh? He attracts brilliant minds. He attracts brilliant minds. Brilliant people mm -hmm. aren't like political zealots. You know, they're not, they're not these, uh, they're just, you know, they're not shallow people that are just going to sit around judging other people because they're intimidated, intimidated by them or because they don't understand something, right? The brilliant minds of this world, when they see something they, they don't understand, they're not afraid of it. They're not intimidated by it. They want to understand it. They dig deeper and learn more and they want to spend their life doing something meaningful. So they apply. They want to be I like that survey. That's a that's a really good survey to pay attention to. I never even thought about that. That's another thing we're gonna have to put in this documentation about like uh, Intuit Econ and the fun, because like we only wrote one letter to friends and family in 2019 about investing because frankly we're still kind of nervous about it. We sent one mass email to all of them. And it was a 33-page paper about why we bought Tesla. That was that was it. And that's something that I'm happy to have an auditor go back through all my emails to verify. Like that's, that's another reason why it's hard to start a fund and say you have like an algorithm and talk about past performance. If, if you really internalize Warren Buffett talking about punch cards and how, and what, you know, I was describing on that, on that, uh, that response, Vishal, to your question, being a good fund manager and helping to make money in markets is a lot more about, you know, reading and learning and talking. And then every now and then you'll find conviction, but you don't know when it's very hard to know if it's really frequent. My God, if we came out every week with like the trade of the week, run, run like hell. Like that's just not the way that this game works. It's like, we don't know when we're going to see it. We don't know, you know, cause the world's complicated. But I think uh, I think we have at least some track record to show that we've had some success, and whether or not that success continues is, you know, highly uncertain. But we're gonna try. That was pretty good, right? Do you guys like? Was that inspirational? I was trying to super inspirational. Good talk. Was that good? <laughs> Took me a minute to process it. It was it was great. Beautiful stuff. <laughs> Just wait till the people investing in the fund find out that my 12 year old daughter, who was actually 10 and 11 at the time, was one of my like key co authors helping me learn about 3D printing by fixing my door and like, uh, you know, putting on a demo day with her friends talking about like CRISPR Cas9 technology. Like, you want to talk, talk about like, how do you get to 10,000 hours quicker? If you're having a lot of fun learning about investing, learning about markets, and learning about technology, with your family, with your friends and inspiring people, like inspiring kids to like get into this stuff. Oh man, getting to 10,000 hours is not hard. 
like doing it on a podcast like now with you guys does this feel like work to you i'm having a blast oh this is good fun it's good, super fun yeah well you're working man you're working this is uh this is hard work you know talking about the world and human psychology and markets and technology this is oh it's so hard i'm just breaking the sweat <laughs> you'll get there you'll get there all right what else do you guys want to talk about I do want to hear your thoughts on this. Basically, um, Tesla wasn't invited to the electric vehicle summit. <laughs> so like, how do you assess what? that risk? What? <laughs> yeah, there's a clear bias against Tesla and Elon Musk. It seems what? like Washington favors the legacy automakers. Tesla I wonder why. Invited. I wonder why. Tesla wasn't invited to the... Yeah, oh, it's insane. That's hilarious. Oh my God. Uh, so remember what I said earlier about as soon as Tesla announces that they're able to achieve this next, uh, if they if they can achieve autonomous driving and signal that and regulatory approval in California and then short all their competitors, we've been working on that portfolio for about two years. So when we first invested in Tesla, we made a big mistake. It wasn't enough for us to, and you can go back on Twitter and see this stuff too. We put like 15% of our entire portfolio in one company. We'd never done that. But in our mind, it wasn't enough. We had such high conviction. We started shorting all their competitors. We started shorting oil markets. Like we were like, not a whole lot, but then the market kept going up all the way up until the pandemic. So, you know, that was some like, we hadn't done a ton of shorting before. That was that was kind of an early lesson about hard, how hard that is. And so in, in the piece that we published a couple of weeks ago about, about how we short, man, there was a lot in that that came from doing this badly. You need to have a catalyst. You need to have something that 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 these algo efficient markets don't see coming, but you're pretty confident it's gonna happen quick. Um there's no better, there's no better signal for that because it's just who wants to even like, you're going to wait. If you're about to buy a car and Tesla has autonomous cars and they just announced it and you're about to buy a Ford, you're going to wait another month or two to see what happens. Like you're going to, that's going to be huge headline news. Um, and so, yeah, the fact that they're all rallying against Tesla, um, I think is really good that 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 provides more conviction on my part because it shows fear. Right? It's like, why would they do that? Like, who does that? Like in other contexts, think about other contexts. Like, who does that? People that are shallow, fearful, and afraid. Yeah. Great. Fabulous. Good to hear the news. Feeling great. Fantastic. Excited. This will be fun. But I don't know when that, it's going to be a while, I think. And also you look historically at Tesla, they went through their own little cycles, kind of like Bitcoin, mm -hmm. where they ran up a whole lot. And then for two, three years, they would trade in a range and then ran up a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we're in that range again for Tesla. I think it's going to be, you know, another year, year and a half. Unless, of course, this jump condition happens. But um you know, just keep that in mind because I'd say that's that's probably the weakest part of uh, of our call is that 
so much of ARK Invest is still highly correlated with Tesla because that's what led people to discover ARK Invest, that if we're wrong, it'll probably be because of Tesla. It'll probably be because, because the algos are, are picking up on that. And if they don't see the breakout for Tesla, then it'll actually end up weighing on genomics and 3D printing, which doesn't make any sense, right? There's no reason why a 3D printing company in Switzerland and a genomics company in Israel is correlated to an electric vehicle maker that's making other car companies shit their pants. There's just no reason, right? But the algos create these relationships, right? They're, they're picking up on these relationships. They just don't know how. We, we think of them as being very smart. They're not very smart. They're, they're just very good at using historical data to try to predict the future as best you can with historical data, right? So even if we're wrong about the next month, we're not going to change the portfolio. We're just going to wait for the next month. Uh, but I think the consolidation, it's, it's really what we were talking about before about these, like it's the triangles. It's like the huge dominance of retail investors. I'm already seeing the triangles popping up on Twitter now with, with ARKK and the, oh, the breakout. And people were talking about it more. And we already had like the capitulation puke where everybody was talking about Kathy Woods, a fraud back in May. So we, we kind of already went through that phase, right? So, and then also the whole time, what do you think happens to a company that's growing at 50 to, uh, you know, 100% growth year over year over a six month period? Well, the price to sales ratio just came down by 30%. Mm -hmm. you know? A lot of these companies just became profitable like in the past quarter, right? So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot fundamentally supporting the call. It's a lot easier to support, it's a lot easier to do technicals when you understand the fundamentals, it's like when you already knew that crypto was gonna, you know, have a breakout and have a new bull market because of DeFi and the reality on the ground, right? It makes technicals way easier because you know which way they're gonna break. Otherwise, you look at the triangle and you're like, break up or down. Oh man, what's gonna happen? We're just waiting <laughs> for the break up. Like, we're not worried about breaking down. Like, what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, that makes it easier. Mm -hmm. All right, guys. Well, I'm really excited for this party. Invite all your friends. This is gonna be fun. I've actually been waiting for this for six years. Oh, wow. Now we're two weeks away. Blog, you know, like when I, like I always really just wanted, I just didn't want people to know about my career because I didn't want people to bet on me because of my background in finance and stuff. I, I, I just wanted to have like a completely clean, unbiased, I'm just gonna publish what I think, see what happens, right? And it's been a really incredible journey. And I learned a lot, I'm a young guy, uh, I still make a lot of mistakes. That's part of the reason why I want a brain trust, by the way, like you don't do that if you just think you've got a good brain. I think Donald Trump said that. Somebody asked him why he just fires everybody from his cabinet. He's like, I got a good brain. It's like, you're an idiot. It's like, if you want to have a good brain, have a hive mind. Find people that share your deep interest. Find people that love learning with you. Build a compound interest relationship with them. 
and grow over time. Use, use that to become not just a better investor, but a better person. It's like being open-minded, being willing to take criticism, putting your ideas out there and facing up when you make mistakes. This will help you with your marriage and be a better parent as much as it will with being a better investor. It's about sharpening your mind, discovering yourself, having an excuse to learn about the world. That's what this is all about. If we make it about that, then if we make mistakes, if we lose money, fine, we're going to own up to it. And if we lose investors, you know, fine. That's, that's, that should happen. And people should be extremely uh, skeptical. My God, how many, how many young people around the world right now are starting hedge funds because they think they're brilliant, you know, 10, 12 years into a bull market and they just made a ton of money during the pandemic because of all the money flowing into the system. How many? I'm guessing a lot. So let's keep our eyes open. Let's be really honest. Let's try to scare people away, if anything, and tell them about those realities like that we have not traded through a cycle. I mean, unless you count the pandemic cycle. I was down, I don't know, that was pretty good. But, but still, like it wasn't really like a prolonged bear market. That's a reality. So let's just, let's just make sure that we have fun and, and be really transparent with people. Let's just be very humble. We can be confident if, about what we believe, but we gotta be humble about what we don't know. And we need to be incredibly transparent with them about the risks. We are not gonna be just soliciting a bunch of people and saying, hey, invest with us, we're gonna do great. That's bullshit. We don't know how well we're gonna do. Um, yeah, what do you guys think? I think that's the truth. Yeah, we definitely want uh, everybody to understand investing is not a game. All right, guys, well, it's an absolute pleasure as usual. And uh, I think we're all doing great work. I could not ask for a better team. Um, I'm having so much fun. Let's not stop having fun. As long as we're honest, we can keep having fun. Let's do it. Let's have some fun then. All right, guys. That was great. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Thank you guys.